There's been a massive culture change on the main tour. You know, all the all the players in the main tour are, look fantastic now. They all look like Greek gods. They're all big and tall and strong, and they're all in the gym most days. But they all want to hit bombs, though, Lewis, don't they? they oh, everyone want to wants bombs. to hit bombs. All bombs. But talking <laughs> of bombs. Uh, this paper that we're touching on now, this is looking at how they went on the golf simulator uh, in terms of their golf variables after that strength conditioning program. So if you are going to go out and still think that you can play like you did in your 20s and carry on like John Daly or someone like that and try to carry that through until your 60s and 70s, it's not going to happen. Mm. As Chris is identifying here, twice a week for half an hour, doing some form of exercise and workout that's helping these kind of aspects could really help your longevity and enjoyment of the game. Hello and welcome to the Golf Science Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Thompson, your golf science educator. Now in this podcast, we explore the latest research in golf science talking to sports science researchers from around the world in the areas of nutrition, psychology, biomechanics, physiology, strength and conditioning, as well as other sports science disciplines. We take a deep dive into their research, as well as looking at how the findings are useful for playing professionals, coaching professionals and amateur golfers. So before we get started today, I need to introduce my co-host, Lewis Downey, PGA Pro. Hey dude, you okay today? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, Dan. How are you? Very good, very good. Uh, nice and, well, I say I'm kind of refreshed after the uh, Christmas and New Year period, um, but looking forward to getting stuck back in with the episodes, with deliveries and that kind of thing, so all good. How about you? Yeah, no, all good. I, I don't think um, Graham would vouch for my nutrition over Christmas uh, from the last episode. It was uh, pretty poor that week, but I enjoyed myself, so that's what matters. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm exactly the same. But it has given me some interesting thoughts um, after it, really. I kind of was thinking about kind of the take-home messages I found from that. Um, some of the things that I kind of pulled out for me were kind of around the, the protein perspective. Um, I didn't really think about the duration, if you don't have protein during a round, actually how long of the day you're not having protein. Um, so that was one of the big things for me. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and the hunger cue stuff as well. What do, you, what do you mean by that one, sorry? As in it helps you uh, feel fuller for longer. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, um, and the second thing that really hit home with me was also the drinks-related aspect too around kind of if you're playing in really hot conditions... I kind of would have always thought, oh, I should just drink some water. But actually, if you're sweating a lot, he was talking a lot about the other things that you lose, the sodium in your sweat and that kind of thing, and actually the need to replace those aspects too. So they're kind of, for me, the two things that really I took away from it. What about yourself? Yeah, I think I definitely thought more about maybe trying to instruct my clients on a better way to get around the course nutrition-wise. So obviously when mm -hmm. jumping on these calls, it's so important for me to take this information and, and share it with my clients because those are the people on the floor and those are the people playing the golf and um, obviously Graham's working with uh, high-end golfers <laughs> but um, I've got to look after the little people as well so I think the biggest thing for me was kind of you know spreading that message and yeah also that pretty much reiterating what you said is the especially the drinks element I mean I I've always just drunk water on the course I've never really thought about replacing the, the, the salts and stuff like that yeah, um, and the other thing I, when, when you're talking about it then from a pro's perspective too, I think 
one thing that highlighted to me is how I guess golf clubs could make it a lot easier um, for players with nutrition if they were really thinking about the snacks they were putting in the pro shop and the kind of menus that they were offering for breakfast yeah. and afterwards. I think they were big kind of things to take away as well. So obviously today, um, today we're going to be focusing the episode uh, obviously around strength and conditioning for senior players. Now, I assume obviously within your role as as a coaching pro and the fact that the average age of golfers um, is generally kind of, I think it's something like over 50 is where the large proportion is. Kind of, what's your your thoughts around this? Have you do you work with this kind of clientele? Do you see any physical limitations within those groups? All the time, um, I see physical limitations throughout ages, but obviously more so in the older generation. Um, and we definitely find that things that like flexibility of you know being able to rotate, for example, um, you know, poor hip mobility and shoulder mobility stuff like that starts to deteriorate I, i've come across backswing gets shorter rotation gets less and then they can't pro- provide as much speed or velocity to to hit it mm. further and then they come for a lesson asking to hit it further um and a lot of the time if they can't make good enough ground my answer is to go and see a you know physio or pt or something like that to kind of work on that element because one thing we do try obviously is to try and make sure they're striking the ball well and they've got the right equipment Mm. from my end that's probably the two things that we can cater for but off the back of that if we can't make any more ground then we need to start looking at you know what can they get out of their body if anything at all Mm -hmm. yeah no definitely no i can see that and that actually leads us very nicely and that sounds like you almost planned it then lewis um was then to introduce obviously the additional (laughs) guest with us today um talking about physios um so today we are joined by Lindsay smart Um, he's a golf physiotherapist and he's worked with the dp world tour scottish golf challenge tour and legends tour so Lindsay, welcome to the podcast hi dan much how are you today you okay yeah, good, yeah, good. Just had a nice Christmas break, so ready to go again. <laughs> good man, good man. Um, so talking about, obviously, your role, um, can you tell us just a little bit about the work you kind of do with those uh, top players uh, and any issues that you see in senior players that are kind of common? Yeah, maybe do about three or four Legends events every year, senior tour. Uh, the most common condition by far is back pain. Um and it, it tends to be a kind of arthritic-y, long-standing back pain. And their schedule's very biased to the summer, so they don't do much golf over the winter. A lot of them stay in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, they won't play much golf till May, and then the season kicks off. And then June, July, August, they're almost playing every week. They go from almost no load at all to like a, a lot of load, so all their back problems tend to flare up. So they tend to start the season with no pain, and then it, it gradually accumulates to the middle of the season. So... Um, really just help them manage manage that. There's no catastrophic back pain, like very few people can play but, but they're usually pretty sore when they play. Mm-hmm. Got you. Um, and do they, do they do kind of any well, I hope they do, but any, any training in the off season to really kind of help prevent that or is that as a kind of, as a general theme do they kind of not really do much training over the winter, kind of how do they manage that? So um, our lead physio at the Legends Tour, Ola Moynihan, she did a little survey in Seychelles at the last event of the season. And um, we found about 50% of the, the field. So there was a field of about 50 and about half of them were doing regular 
exercise or regular strength conditioning. Um, what what stuff they did wasn't necessarily sort of what we would call ideal, but um, at least uh, around half of them are doing regular exercise. I do wonder, okay. actually, from the guys on the Legends Tour, let's say we pull them back a few years to their prime and say they're the same age as the people now on the DP World Tour, I do wonder the percentages then of how many do it now versus like actually you know, physio, exercise, all the strength and conditioning versus what the Legends Tour players would have done 20 years ago, let's say. I do wonder what the, that stat would be. And I, I think obviously <clears throat> we probably imagine that the DP now, they're probably doing a hell of a lot more. But I do wonder what the percentage yeah. was back then. That's a great question, yeah. Yeah, there's been a massive culture change on the main tour. You know, all the all the players in the main tour are, look fantastic now. They all look like Greek gods. They're all big and tall and strong, and they're all in the gym most days. Um, so, you know, I, I was kind of brought up playing golf in the 80s and 90s, and, and you know, I, I can't think any players that were like that. You know, maybe Bernard Langer and a few others, but um, now I think everyone's like that on the Challenge and on the DP Tour. Um, the seniors tour, I think there are more looking after themselves, but not to the extent that on the main tour, uh, that culture change hasn't quite sort of um, gone across to the seniors tour yet. But um, it's definitely moving in the right direction. Gotcha. Um, well, thanks for joining us again. So between obviously the three of us, we're hopefully going to start to explore the research uh, published by uh, Chris Joyce today. Um, so it's about time for us to introduce the main guest um, so dr chris joyce uh, from the university of notre dame australia um, so hey chris welcome to the podcast morning dan morning guys thanks for having me on you are very welcome thank you for actually joining us today it's been great to get you across the other side of the world to join us today on the podcast um, so just to fill the listeners in a little bit about uh, your background, um, so Chris is a senior lecturer in biomechanics, exercise physiology and functional anatomy. He runs the Golf Rehab Clinic in Perth, Australia, which offers golf-specific musculoskeletal screening and physical conditioning. Um, he has over 50 publications in the area of sports science and has several publications in golf, two of which, yes, two, um, we're going to be talking about today. Um, does that just about sum up uh, everything that's kind of your background there, Chris? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Yeah, that's pretty much my, my background. Um, I was originally interested in, in golf. Probably didn't start playing until about my early 20s. Um, and then through studying in exercise and sports science, um, working as an exercise physiologist as well, I kind of put the two together with having... Uh, being educated in strength conditioning, rehab, those sort of things, and then working a lot in private practice with a lot of older golfers and also younger golfers too, uh, just trying to apply those strength conditioning rehabilitation ways. And then um, kind of got dragged into academia a little bit more, went through a PhD, uh, specified more in uh, 3D motion capture with golfers, uh, and then just kind of carried on the private practice with uh, the exercise physiology and also working a lot more with the senior golfers and then set up the golf rehab clinic which you've just mentioned there which is in the university uh, research lab brilliant so all all encompassing golf all ages strength and conditioning wicked love it um i'd love to do more of that stuff uh we have at the university of derby as well um as we spoke before about obviously analysis that we've got there but um love to progress into having kind of a strength conditioning related uh delivery there too so 
we'll catch you a little bit more after the podcast today to talk a bit more about that. So, Chris, today obviously we're going to be talking about two of your papers. Um, now, from kind of reading through them, I feel the first paper we're going to talk about kind of sets the scene around the ageing golfer um, very nicely. Um, so I think it then sets us perfectly up for that second paper. So if you're happy, um, we'll start with the first paper, which is the effect of age-related musculoskeletal conditions on senior golfer physical capacity, golf performance ability, and playing characteristics. So let's start off by talking about, more generally, more broadly, how ageing can affect someone physically. And what are the AMRCs that we spoke about within that paper? So yeah, what what effects can ageing have physically? And then we could talk about that extra element. Yeah, I mean, the other boys just touched on there just, just beforehand about how players just get older and they have certain incapacities where they didn't have where they were a little bit younger, such as uh, rotational speed or flexibility or hip mobility and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but when we were initially screening for this study, we wanted to see, uh, based on some of the research that was around, that was just generally talking about as people get older, um, they get more inflexible, they lose strength, they lose balance, all this sort of stuff. Um, and the honest was to actually see how that affected um, their golf game as a whole. Some previous studies had actually looked at um, just the physical differences in terms of those that have specific disorders. And these disorders were classed generally as arthritis, osteoporosis. Um, I think we had osteoarthritis in there as well. Yeah, we had lower back pain too. Just general um, musculoskeletal disorders that people get as they age. Um, and we wanted to just see how that affected um, not only their physical condition, but uh, their ability to play golf, but importantly too, which was one of the big things in that research paper as well, was their, how they actually approach the game of golf. So how they practice golf, how they play, what do they focus on, what are their, their things they like to work on versus what they can't based on their physical condition. And these were things that kind of set us aside from previous research that had just specifically looked at people with these sort of disorders and, and how it affected them. So we wanted to get more of a holistic um, review of how it affected those with and, and those without. Gotcha. So obviously talking to Lewis uh, and Lindsay there, we're starting to see a picture of around that, um, that seeing these issues with flexibility, with potentially strength as we begin to age. What, what does the research kind of say around those aspects? Does the research suggest that that is the case, um, basically? Yeah, so pretty much what we were able to do was with that first study was to basically separate those that did and, and those that didn't have that. So I think we ended up with, uh, from memory, I think it was about 37 or 36 out of the 52 participants actually had some sort of disorder. Mm -hmm. Now, when we actually surveyed and tried to get participants into the study, we had put this out to golf clubs in the local area. So those participants had, uh, they were quite local to come in and, and uh, take part in the research and the study as well. But we were just as happy to have people that didn't have any disorders who were relatively healthy to be able to have a look at uh, what they were doing with their golf characteristics too, how they played, how they practiced. But at the same time, we wanted to actually screen them as well, both from a physical perspective, um, anthropometric, anthropometric as well, such as height and weight, um, and then also have a look at their golfing characteristics too, uh, which we had on the golf sim, which we had set up as well. But there was pretty much yeah clear difference from that paper based on if you had one of those conditions 
um, what your physical capacities were, and then also how that translated into your golf practice and also into your uh, golf ability as well. Gotcha. Okay. So how does um, that, what, what actually resulted from that? What impact did it have on, like you say, that their, their golfing performance and then also the way in which the golfers then play and practice golf? What, what were the findings yeah. of what you found? Well, from a physical perspective, uh, some of the ones that spring to mind that we had was um, those that have a condition had uh, decreased trunk flexibility, such as uh, sit and ridge test. Um, they had decreased sit to stand score. So that's as many squats as you can do from chair to standing in 30 seconds. Uh, trunk extension, which was like uh, holding your back in extension in terms of uh, how, how long could you do that for. Um, and there was timed up and go as well, which was rising from a chair, going around a cone. I think it was three meters ahead, coming back and sitting down. They were all timed exercises as well. So anything which associated with flexibility, strength and endurance um, as we would imagine that somebody with a condition would have, would see a decrease in those. Um, moving on to the golf just, just to pause, well. Just to pause you there then, Chris, just because I want to pick apart yeah. some of that. Some of those exercises that you've uh, you selected for this study, is that something that you would kind of recommend potentially like pros like Lewis, for example, if they do have the older kind of athlete to do kind of a baseline testing to compare against? Yeah, so I don't want to give too much away because that part of the research, we haven't had that published yet, which was the, the physical improvements. We've kind of gone to a different journal on that one. But it was pretty much what you were talking about before, where if you looked at the, the 80s golfers, the um, kind of the mentality wasn't there for those players to go into the gym, to rehabilitate properly, to have some sort of periodized program. Also, nutrition having an impact on there as well. Those sort of things that, that weren't there. But... To kind of give you a bit of a sneak peek, some of the physical improvements that these conditioned players had in the study were amazing in a relatively short period of time for what they were able to do. So as the saying goes, you know, you, you can teach an old dog new tricks when it comes to being able to improve and maintain these. And generally when people who come across with these conditions, such as arthritis, osteoporosis, uh, low back pain, those sort of things, there are physical ways in which you can strengthen your body to increase your endurance and your flexibility to kind of maintain what you have. Those with osteo uh, osteoporosis who have low bone mineral density, the first thing that they're told to do is to try to undertake some sort of strength training to hold on to what you've got left and try to improve your bone mineral density. So it's something that it's never too late to start to be able to, um, to, be able to see some effects. Gotcha. And just to listeners there as well, um, you can download the first paper that we're talking about here, where it's the, obviously the, the comparison between those with the condition and those without. Uh, you can download that for ResearchGate for, for free. You can just go to Google and you can type that in. Um, so if you did want to have a look at some of the numbers that came out around the two different groups for each of those different exercises and what those exercises are, I'm sure you can pull that out of that paper with ease as well. So thoughts on that, Lewis? Would you be screening potential uh, players as in the older groups do you do that already or do you think you could do in the future i think um it would be nice to be, have have a process um i have undergone like the the tpi course before with tightless um so i had that but i think i i definitely found it hard getting some of the older generation part of the client base on board to do that um and seeing reasoning behind it um 
And then also, like, off the back of that, I think, personally, as a pro, I can't recommend any exercises. So it can't, we kind of hit a little bit of a wall there. So I think it would have to be, we'd have to dovetail with a, a fitness professional, uh, like a physio or a PT or, or someone of that nature, to to make the improvement for that person. Um, Chris, just quickly, on those, like, the standing up, sitting down and stuff, is that just general mobility or is that kind of, yeah. it's not related to golf per se, it's just general mo- mobility? I suppose it's like flexion and stuff. No, that's but, a very good yeah. Correct. Yeah, these are just standard tests. Um, so we, in Australia, we have Exercise and Sports Science Australia, known as ESSA, um, and they accredit exercise physiology as our health professionals and also uh, they accredit exercise scientists as well so a lot of the terms uh that we use throughout the study we went back to a lot of the validated systematic review type um uh, methods of exercise testing to make sure that they were all set to standard so we could use a series of norms to compare to to say where you fit based on your age uh your gender that sort of stuff um and also with the exercises that we gave them which was linked to the second part of that study, which was the um, the ESSA presentation done this year. Um, again, those were focused on uh, validated exercise protocols, sets and reps, RPE, that sort of stuff, to basically make sure that when we do publish this type of stuff, it's not like we've just picked out random um, exercise testing uh, and, and use them with us. Um, but that's why we wanted to use the, the golf sim type stuff to have a look at driver, seven iron pitch and wedge to kind of get an holistic view of, of, of all of that there. So we didn't really look at, for example, like rotational power where you're like throwing a medicine ball in a chair, that sort of stuff. Those exercises have been used in previous research, but any type of high impact type exercise like power, ballistic movements for this type of condition groups probably mm. wasn't safe um, to be able to gotcha. put in there. Good. Thank you. Chris, have you ever had any shockers that you like got someone in the gym, did these exercises, and you're like, I have no clue how you how you actually play golf? Uh, we did have a, we yeah we had one or two people who signed up to the study. I think they just saw it golf and they just went yeah I'll come in there. So when we were setting up um, what you what you had to have to be in the study, it was you had to be obviously over the age of fifty five, which um, in Golf Australia kind of sets they have a report every year. And they kind of set out what the average age is to be classed as senior, that sort of stuff. Um, we wanted them to be a member of a club or at least playing uh, 18 holes twice a week just to be able to actually physically play golf. And some of the people that we had in for testing, particularly when we had them on the golf sim, it was quite clear that they never hit a ball in oh, ever or um, they haven't picked up a club in, say, five to ten years. So for them, it was more... Again, this, the social side of it was fantastic over over the six weeks, and it was supposed to be longer. And it was done obviously without knowing that COVID was going to shut everything down in March 2020, which we were lucky to actually get six weeks out and also get people retested in that time before everything shut down. But um, we just kind of kept those guys in the study. We didn't use any of their data, didn't use their research because they weren't part of the inclusion criteria. But um, yeah, some of them had never hit a ball before. They just saw it and just wanted to sign up. But we just kept them in for the social thing, coming in, socializing. They got a lot out of that, even though we didn't use mm. the data at the end of the day. Gotcha. And you were gonna, before I interrupted you, you were going to come on there to obviously the impact it had on their golf and their practice and performance and stuff. 
Yeah, so one of the things we did was not just put them on the golf sim to have a look at long game, approach play, uh, and short game as well. Uh, we wanted to have a look at how they practice too. So the reason I've kind of set the scene with those two is the results were kind of interesting to say that when we looked at how they practiced, a lot of their time was spent on approach play and also short game. But these with the condition didn't really spend a lot on long game. And then when we actually compare that to the physical decrements, it kind of makes a bit of sense that those players, and like what Lewis was saying before, those players who are wanting to hit further but don't have the ability to produce club head speed because it hurts or they have a condition or something like that, they're not going to take that into the practice. So we found that the healthy cohort obviously spent more time working on the long game. When we put them on the golf sim, they far outperformed the condition group for club head speed, ball velocity, carry distance, all those ones. Um, and it was very interesting to compare their physical ability, their golf swing simulator um, variables, but then also wanting to look at how they performed as well. And also looking at things about um, the ability about using a cart. So those that had a condition were using a cart a little bit more. Um, they were spending a little bit time out less practicing because it was painful and stuff like that. So the fact that we collected those three different groups of data, so we had the physical, we had the golf sim, and then we had the golf playing characteristics, there was a lot of really good stories that kind of explained why things married up and why players were practicing with conditions and without and what they were focusing on. Yeah, I guess one big take home there is that injuries or pain often doesn't stop golfers because they love it that much that they actually keep playing through it. Um, but it's a very interesting observation that, as you say, it changes where they focus their practice and those who are suffering um, mm. are doing more short game uh, practice because actually they might be able to make up the benefits over here and obviously losing some distance, therefore impacting their score over here. It's quite an interesting kind of reaction almost to to the issues um i was quite yeah it was it was quite sorry no, 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 go on, no go on. i was just saying with the the um the, the golf science journal article itself that, that first paper where you can get all the physical differences the golf differences and the playing differences are it was very clear looking at those that focused on long game versus approach play and it was almost an inverse relationship between the short game and percentage of condition players that worked on short game versus those that worked on long game. And it was complete opposites for the healthy group. I was just about yeah. to say that. So I, I have to convince my clients, like the, the ones that move well, the healthy group, <clears throat> to go and practice their short game <laughs> because they don't do it enough. They like just dink a few chips, a few putts before they go out and play and that's it. Like there's, no, there's no emphasis. And I'm like, you know, you're so close to the green. A lot of people will kill to be this close to the green. And you can't get up and down. You can't chip and putt. Where on the flip side, the other people can because they kind of have to save those shots when they get to the green because they've yeah. it's taken them a driver and four hybrids to get to the front edge of the green. Um, and they need to get up and down. So that's, that's yeah, like you say, that's I definitely see that. But they all want to hit bombs though, Lewis, don't they? Oh, they everyone wants to hit bombs. <laughs> All bombs. Talking of bombs, um, uh, where, where, where did you test? You tested club head speed and and, and ball speed, and obviously yeah. off the back of that, you yeah. know, you would require. Did you look at things like smash factor? So obviously, how efficient the strike was off the back of yeah, it. Yeah, we yeah we have all of that. We have all of that data. It was a case of we didn't want to make it too complicated, so we just went with club head speed, ball velocity, uh, carry distance. Um, 
uh, accuracy, I think the other one was, from, from memory. So we did have Smash Factor, we had um, Angle of Attack, all that sort of stuff, but it was just too, a little bit too complex for what we needed. We just wanted to give them that basic data of how far do I hit it, what's my clubhead speed, what's my ball velocity, how far offline am I, am I going to be? So also for readers as well, for non-golf-specific readers who want to be looking at health related research and stuff like that with seniors we just didn't want to make it too no i get that totally i definitely feel um obviously if you're going to improve their flexibility and the ability to move with the centered strike we're going to see the best result hopefully they realize that that was the case too (laughs) we will shift gears uh then to move on to the second paper then Chris because you've spoken a little bit about it you've alluded to it um we will move on to that section now so before we do that Lindsay let me know your thoughts on what your players and the players that you see do you see that kind of pattern um within kind of the, the senior players that you work with absolutely yeah the the guys that are sore tend to taper their practice a lot some of them will only play nine holes before they, they play in practice very, very little. The guys that are sore, like, like don't really go in the range, they'll have quite a short warm-up and the competition's pretty much the only the only time they play in a competition week. Whereas you go in the, the main tour, the guys will be practicing a couple of hours a day on top of their, their round. So that's very much a great um, reflection of what Chris is saying. They, they very much do taper their practice um, because they, they find it painful and it, it irritates their conditions. That was one of the things from working in the Legends Tour was how little they actually practice. Um, I was brought up to believe like lots and lots of practice, you know, like three, four hours a day, whereas the Legend Tours guys are, are, are very smart, you know, they don't practice much at all. Um, I suppose their their skill levels are already pretty high, but that's one of the things I noticed from working on tour was how little they actually practiced. Well, if they're doing a three-day event, um, by day three, they're going to be pretty, uh, pretty, well, pretty sore. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. And what, what kind of things, Lindsay, do they do to manage that pain? Like, uh, So for analgesia, so ibuprofen, paracetamol, um, kind of hands-on techniques are, are really helpful when people are sore. So we do a bit of massage and a bit of loosening um, and, and good sleep and diet is what we, what we recommend. But um, yeah, just a kind of a combination of everything. Uh, um, each of these kind of um, treatments kind of has a little bit of an effect on it. So... Um, you know, by the middle of the end of the season, they're they're quite commonly using ibuprofen regularly. And I know, obviously, you as a physio, I guess you do quite a bit of physical manipulation, do you, with them afterwards? Yeah, I tend to tend to do it before the event to to get them loosening, and it's more recovery stuff afterwards, kind of gentle match. But um, we tend to loosen them off before they go out, so the kind of max rotation that they have, and it mm. tends to be much more kind of recovery stuff after so be like gentle massage really um but we tend to loosen them up before they go out amazing well imagine that lewis imagine if you could go to your golf course get a smoothie bar from from graham um so you've got your smoothie ready to go before you play you've got Lindsay there trying to give you a nice kind of uh massage for loosen up before you play imagine how well you play we'd all be scratched and a little warm-up on some super speed sticks <laughs> there you go so far perfect love it all right then we do active warm-up rather than passive modalities but um you know they'll come in before their warm-up and and sort of loosen them off doing mobilizations manipulations can sometimes make a big difference to the range of motion so 
we'll use that, but we'll always encourage an active warm-up because um, passive modalities don't really kind of get their muscles going. So we're always trying to fit in with the evidence as well. Yeah, great stuff. So let's move on then to the second paper. Um, so Chris, we're going to be talking obviously about the second one, which you've alluded to, which is around hitting longer. Now this this title, just to clarify, is a little bit complex for the listeners here. It was complex for me reading it, to be honest with you. Um, but hitting longer and stronger, enhanced holistic golf performance in senior players with age-related musculoskeletal conditions following a strength training intervention. So let me try and summarize some of the key aspects of that. I can, so, I can summarize I the title. Just hitting longer, you go for it. hitting longer and stronger. Just leave it there. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, am I right in saying the paper's focused on kind of uh, a strength and conditioning program to enhance these injured senior players? Effectively, is that kind of what it's all about, there, Chris? Correct. So, let's say we obviously just talked about the first paper there. So, that was the overview of what these people, who these people are, what they have, what they do, what their characteristics are. Then, what we did was we put them into a six week strength conditioning program, which was done twice a week. Took them generally about half an hour, 40 minutes. It was fully supervised by up to four exercise uh, physiologists and professionals to be able to look after them. And then, like I said, COVID shut us down a little bit prematurely. So it was supposed to be a little bit longer uh, to give us a more longitudinal uh, aspect of it. But by the time we actually had them in and out at the end of the seventh week, so we had them finished at the sixth week, tested in the seventh, and then COVID just locked everything down. Um, The results that we saw after only six weeks were they were very, yeah, they were very, very good. Um, this, we're talking about paper one, paper two. This is actually the third part. So the second part, it's like we've released these in the wrong order. Um, <laughs> this one's currently still under review. So we're just waiting for the feedback on that one. That was the physical changes. Uh, this paper that we're touching on now, this is looking at how they went on the golf simulator uh, in terms of their golf variables after that strength conditioning program. So like I said, it was twice a week uh, in our new human performance lab. Uh, It was done fully supervised. We were looking at four, I think it was from memory, it was just four compound exercises. There was a lower body push, upper body push, lower body pull, upper body pull. So it was just machine-based exercises. A lot of these people had, some of them never used a gym before. So to get them to learn how to squat, deadlift, and stuff like that, which is far superior exercises, but you're not getting someone in their 70s who has never done it before to try to do that and then get competent with it in six, seven weeks. So we keep it just basic machine-based exercises. Um, Everything to do with that is fully controlled. We can moderate the intensity of the exercise through changing the weight. We had um, a rate of perceived exertion, so how hard they felt they were, they were training after every set out of 10, and we kept that to seven. So it was relatively high for those people to, to feel some sort of effort in, in what they were training for. So it was six weeks worth of that. Um, and then we got them back in for a full physical screening, which we haven't released those yet. Um, and then we also did the golf simulator stuff too. And this is what um, the results of this study was. So the, the, the biggest thing that we found from this was that 58% of all the golf um, shots or everything that was done on the golf sim favoured increases towards the condition group. Now, the really important part of that was 
again, we've talked about how this married up to their playing characteristics in terms of what they practice on, what their condition limits them with. It was the biggest improvements in these areas. So just to make that a bit easier to understand, anything to do with a seven iron and a pitching wedge, the changes from pre to post were bigger than the healthy group pre to post. The only things that didn't change or didn't, well, they did improve, but not as much as the healthy group was the long game. So anything to do with the driver, because they don't use the driver, because they can't, because they have the condition that inhibits them, and because they don't practice on that, if we were to see an improvement in the driver, it would be a bit of a surprise because it's something that they're not used to doing. And because they're limited with their physical capacity, we didn't expect to see any changes there. But pretty much, yeah, 60% or almost two thirds of what we saw, which was everything to do with the uh, the approach play in the short game, um, was just saw massive improvements throughout the, um, the effective strength conditioning. And another really cool thing as well was the accuracy too. So when we talk about accuracy on a golf sim, we talk about that imaginary line down the target and we tell them to hit it as straight as possible. A lot of them were able to just reduce their accuracy, sorry, improve their accuracy and just keep it more towards that target line as, a, as opposed to say pushing, pulling, hooking, slicing, all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and they found that that was a, a massive improvement. Chris, why do you feel that um, they were able to be more accurate um, based on the training linked to the, the approach play in short game? Because obviously you don't need to move that much. What, did they create more self-awareness or anything like that? What, what's your sort of take on that? I'd say that they're motor patterns. So like you talked about before with the older players, they've got the skill ability. They've been doing that for decades. So they've got that there. So, you know, you look at other players, you know, like Fred Couples stands out, for example. Uh, Bernard Langer, these are just like the textbook names that you know are going to probably still continue to, to play on. Uh, Bernard Langer definitely is someone that undertakes physical training and has that as part of his routine but I think that the the practice motor patterns that they had from short game and approach play were already there the driver wasn't there they didn't practice mm -hmm. on long game their inability to hit driver based on pain or their condition or whatever it was wasn't there so I feel like the improvements that we saw and I'll, again I'll give you some of the I won't give you all of them but some of the improvements that we saw from the physical perspective such as balance um, was definitely a big factor in helping them to get more accuracy. Uh, as we know, we work from the ground up with kinetic chain. So we want them to have that ground foot interaction to be able to drive more and then drive back out. Um, and I think these were the things that, that helped them to be able to improve those things. Awesome. Yeah, so basically trying to just stimulate the right things in the body. <laughs> One thing I want to ask you there, Chris, is about the the training status of both of the groups like i assume that neither group had experience working with uh, or doing uh, strength training before is that correct from a visual i remember some of the guys coming in in the healthy group mm -hmm. and they were clearly you looked at them and they just went yeah you work out you train Okay. Um, we didn't get any information on whether they do undertake. Well, I think we did. We just didn't put it into the into the results. So we wanted to know, like, what was your other physical activity outside of golf and stuff like that. The majority of them was just stuff like walking and swimming and stuff like that. Uh, from memory, there wasn't as many replies that talked about, like, gym, strength training and stuff like that. That wasn't necessarily there. But the players in the healthy group, you could just tell that they – did a little bit more physical activity. Mm. Um, and those that had the condition, pretty much they just played golf. That was their thing. Yeah. And it was more 
for the social side of it. That's the biggest thing we did the study for was when you have someone who is in that senior age group, they're not, they're not using golf as I'm going to win my penance or I'm going to win my club championship and stuff like that. It's more about they're spending the day there with their friends, with their mates, and they're enjoying it. It's the social side of it. And when you have a certain condition that you get injured from and you can't go out and do what you want to do, mm. that was the biggest thing for us to do the study. Everything else was was fantastic. And the results, other, the other results we got from the pre and post um, kind of the uh, the qualitative data, so the descriptive information. How did you feel the program helped you from a social side of things? How did it improve your mental well-being? Did it improve your golf? Obviously, yes, it did. But we wanted to know that holistic approach, so that, that whole view of it. But it was more about the, um, yeah, the healthy group definitely went out and played golf, but they also were physically strong. They had the balance. They had everything. Um, and, and as I said, yeah. based on the results of the first study, they just they were they were weak. They didn't have balance, reduced endurance, all that sort of stuff. It just wasn't there for these guys. Yeah, and I guess the the thing, the reason I was asking that question is when you start to think about kind of research designs and we start to think about those kind of pre characteristics. But actually, the key point, really, the key finding from the research that you found is we're really interested in that unhealthy group, aren't we? You're, you know what I mean, unhealthy, but yeah. the ones who are injured, and actually the benefit that actually doing that training has on those groups, rather than looking at did the healthy group have pre-existing understanding of training, because that's great because, well, it's fine if they did, it's fine if they didn't, but the key thing that we found is with the, the injured group that they had a benefit from doing it. And that's kind of the key take home that I've got from what you're talking about there. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. I mean, a lot of research that we're looking at, particularly within the Australian landscape, is healthy aging. Um, we've got a lot of our population who are aging, and we're not necessarily uh, seeing, you know, like increased populations in, in the younger groups and stuff like that. So we're living longer, um, and it means that if we don't look after ourselves properly, then we're going to get these conditions through inadequate physical activity, inadequate nutrition, characteristics, drinking, smoking, lifestyle, that sort of stuff. Um, so if you are going to go out and still think that, you can play like you did in your 20s and carry on like John Daly or someone like that and try to carry that through until your 60s and 70s, it's not going to happen. Mm. Lindsay, did you have a comment before uh, you jumped off? Yeah, did you, um, did you see a change in flexibility with training? One thing I noticed from the the golfers with our thighs, they tend to be a bit more rounded back, a bit more kyphotic. So I wondered if you saw a, a change in posture with training. Absolutely. I think we, we did do a posture score as well. Um, I think that is in the next paper, which is the physical improvements. Um, so we were able to get them scored based on, we just had them essentially just the, remove their shirt. They were behind screens, all this sort of stuff. Um, and it was the, you're testing me here, I think it's the New York posture scale from memory. It's the one where if, if you were to Google image it, it just gives you like scores of one to five, side on, front on, that sort of thing. Um, and those were screened by uh, a person who look, obviously looks after posture. Um, and from memory, the posture's definitely improved. But yeah, I haven't got those results right in front of me. But um, yeah, there was a lot of physical improvements in terms of pre-post for that group. One of the, like Lewis earlier, one of the biggest changes we see with our thighs to the spine is a, you know, the their rotation in their spine lessens. I look at videos of players in their heyday to now and you definitely do see a, a change in their turn. So it's really interesting that you're saying that their, their posture would improve. I think, you know, if their range of motion was better, they could 
the posture would improve. Yeah, we try to come up even though we we get into, sorry, Lizzie, um, we, we get them to warm up obviously before, but we try to promote thoracic extension as a way of these people who are sitting down most of the time or you know they're just not in a healthy position. But we know that that thoracic extension does improve the um, the existing imbalance in anterior posterior muscles and the tightening and that sort of stuff. Um, so even though we were doing like machine based exercises, we were encouraging good form throughout those exercises um, to be able to promote good spinal posture, keeping nice and tall, all this sort of stuff. Um, and it was definitely something that we did see from the physical improvements into the uh, the anthropometrics. Mm. You talked about rotation in the spine. In the vertebrae, is there much rotation available? Because in the lumbar, there's not much. It's more upper. There's, is it a fraction? Because as far as I'm concerned, I see people move quite well by using better hip mobility as opposed to spinal yeah. mobility. Because um, the spine's not meant, to, not meant to twist, is it really? So... No, the spine combined, so you've got very, very little to no rotation uh, like intervertebrally between discs, but the spine as a whole, when you kind of start at the bottom and then twist the whole way up, you, you, you do get a lot more. But particularly, you try to get more hip mobility in there as well for those that haven't got a lot of good spinal range and, and that sort of stuff, and that's where they tend to get it okay, from. Got it. Yeah. yeah, when you when you talk about uh, spinal mobility there, Lewis, so part of my Generating Power in the Goldswing webinar series that I deliver, I talk a little bit about the spine and talk about, well, actually, if we're talking about X factor and the ability to separate that shoulder and the hips, when you start to look at that separation, just like Chris was saying, between uh, some of the vertebrae, I think we're talking about the lumbar region here. We were talking there's only about a, a, a degree, two to th one to three degrees, kind of a rotation yeah, that you have yeah. between each one. Yeah. Then when you stack up each vertebrae on top of another, you can obviously start to add up all of those rotations. But mm. then as soon as you start to add in like some of the issues that potentially Chris was talking about, like myself, for example, I've suffered from uh, scoliosis, uh, which is best basically sideways bending of the spine. Mine's not extreme. It's just a slight amount. But what you find when you have those kind of issues is that if you have uh, that bend, it reduces the amount of rotation you can perform already. So as soon as you start having these issues with your posture and those kind of things, they can impact the rotational amounts in the spine, which then can lead to those lack of rotations. Got it. Just touching on that point, Dan, um, I did have a paper out, I think it was 2012 or 2013, where we had a lot of younger golfers come in during my PhD time. And we did look at X Factor and X Factor Stretch. And some of these younger players in terms of X Factor Stretch, which basically means that they're at the top of the backswing, that stays still, but their hips counter-rotate, and that increases that X-factor angle um, between the hips and, and the pelvis. But we also looked at multi-segment X-factor. So it's not, I mean, you, you look at it from a transverse plane or a bird's eye view, and you draw a line through the hips and the, and the pelvis, and you go, well, that's my X-shape there. But as you know, the, the shoulders aren't stuck on the pelvis. There's the entire spinal column between that. So we were able to model the lower trunk. And if you can imagine a, a triangle between, say, sternum, uh, 10th thoracic and first lumbar, I think it was, to get like a, a bit of a, um, like a triangle shape. And that lower trunk mobility and the flexibility that these younger golfers had in terms of X-factor and X-factor stretch um, was, was important. And we did something called a, a regression analysis to be able to say, how are these guys producing this clubhead speed? And the regression statistics showed that that lower trunk X-factor 
was producing or you know i mean the statistics so you say it's associated with those guys who were able to get that x-factor stretch or get that hip drive by stalling up here mm. and lagging delaying were producing far more club head speed than those that couldn't it was a really important um mm. yeah really important find yeah and, and the thing that i wanted to add based on your uh, discussion of your study there chris is it doesn't mean that players when they get to the age of 55 they need to now go right I now need to do strength and conditioning. They need to be thinking, am I right at saying, they need to be thinking about that before they're 55, getting prepared for that so they don't have, so they can be the healthy individual rather than the issue and trying to resolve the issue, if that makes sense. Yeah, you're just, you're just prolonging your abilities, what you're doing. You're just getting to the point where you're reaching uh, healthy norms or you're above average for your age category, for strength, endurance, flexibility, that sort of stuff. Um, these guys that we had in, we had them in for two half an hour sessions. And most of the time, there's, they, they all went for coffee afterwards and the social side of it was fantastic. But it was like, I just want you twice a week for half an hour. And we flogged them based on the RPE scores and we had them in there. But it just goes to show that if you've got people that, were, that are kind of disciplined enough to do it themselves, I'd like to think that most of us here undertake some sort of physical activity, go to the gym, that sort of thing. Um, but even for those that aren't disciplined, just going to see your exercise physiologist, PT, that sort of stuff, um, and just have someone do that for you so you haven't got to worry about it. Um, just to then say, oh, I didn't notice a, a drop in my club head speed in my 40s before going back to the gym and then it kind of came up again, just keep that maintained. It's never gonna go up mm. once you get past a certain age, but if you've got it at a certain level and you can maintain that into 60s and 70s and even beyond, um, you're gonna be doing far better than the other person that isn't going. Yeah, and, and as an older golfer listening to this, if you're listening now and you're thinking, okay, I probably should be doing something, I just think try to look at it in the outlook of, if you don't take care of yourself, and you don't do this kind of training to try and keep your body mobile, strong. The sport that you love playing every week, be it three times a week potentially, because you might be retired, you're not gonna be able to do that for as long. And if you are, you might be doing it and in pain the entire time the way around. So that perspective of, well, I don't want that to be the case. So as Chris is identifying here, twice a week for half an hour, doing some form of exercise and workout that's helping these kind of aspects could really help your longevity and enjoyment of the game. So that was just my kind of piece to the listener to try and think about. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you is, Chris, why did you not do putting as one of the things that you measured? I think when we looked at the links, well, first of all, we didn't have um, any type of, we had the golf sim in there and it had, the ability to hit off the mat into the projector screen, all that sort of stuff. We probably didn't have anything to accurately do the putting unless we actually went off site and did a putt test or something like that. It was just an extra bit of stuff, but also the conditions themselves probably didn't hinder putting that much mm -hmm. as opposed to having someone on the first tee with a long par five or something and then saying, right, off you go, hit the drive. Um, they're probably not going to have a, as much a negative effect on putting with their conditions. Gotcha. And um, what do you think this kind of thing means for someone like Lewis, for example, or a PGA pro? What What do you think the application of this, yeah, means for them in their practice? Yeah, I think just as you touched on before, like it's quite easy. I mean, a lot of the TPI stuff that they do is they show you how to screen, 
Um, it, it doesn't take much to identify if someone's weak in strength, endurance, flexibility, that sort of stuff. So you can quite easily identify uh, where the deficiencies are. And also you can link them. There's a lot of research out there that links specific physical inabilities with their golf, uh, with, with their golf ability. Like uh, Lindsay was just talking about there, like spinal rotation is limited when you've got bad posture, stuff like that. So you can assess posture. You can easily get someone into a setup position um, and then be able to see that they haven't got a good spine angle. And you'll know that they've got, uh, you know, poor mobility when it comes to rotation. So you can get them assessed to identify that. Um, and then once you've assessed that as a deficiency there, you send them somewhere to get that worked on and that's where you, you make the improvements. I think that's the biggest obstacle for me though, is even if I did send them somewhere, it's actually them yeah. going and doing it. That is the biggest obstacle because they'll, they'll, they won't be that motivated. There might be the odd person, of course, and, I, and that's great, but that's the obstacle. Um, it's getting people to actually do it, hold them accountable, getting them to go show up and, and go spend the time with another professional. That's the tough bit. We were lucky with the... Because we had a group environment, so we had, I think it was 36 people in that condition group. The, the healthy group, we got them in, tested, we said, right, come back, hopefully in 12 weeks. It didn't happen because of COVID. We got them back in six. But the condition group, we had them in twice a week. And there was about 35, 36 of them off the top of my head. Um, and it was a case of we can't do these all at the same time. So we put them into small groups of four to six. And they just bonded. Yeah. And it, again, obviously, it was a research. It was free. They were coming in. They were getting all the good facilities and stuff. But if you kind of had a group that you were able to send somewhere and stay in that group and have that kind of that social connectiveness there. It's almost like I'm going to go out and play with my four ball and now I'm going to go and do my gym training with my four ball group or whatever it is. And then, you know what it's like if you let someone down, you know, you ring them on the morning, can't make golf today and you're going to be miffed by that. And it's kind of the same sort of mindset when you get into the gym and go, oh, John, Bob, Rob, whatever isn't here today. Well, we're here. And, the hardest thing I found through doing all the private practice stuff is golf's very selfish when it comes to these older players. And when they get onto something like uh, physical improvements and stuff like this, if it helps them get one up on their playing mates, they're not going to talk about it or they're not going to say, oh, I'll go see this guy because he, he helps yeah. me get this. And I'd quite happily say to them from a business perspective, I'd say, why don't you get your mates down? You know, we'll do like group discounts and stuff like that. Oh, no, 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 I'm not doing that. Because then if they come down, I'm not going to be able to beat them and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of this, yeah, there's a lot of that sort of stuff in the background. But I think if you can make it socially acceptable as much as they go out and play in a group in terms of if they can train in a group, some of the things that they do, particularly now in the Australian system, is they've got performance centers where, and some. Um, what I do is I go out and I work with the trainees. And as part of their trainee fortnight or whatever it is, they'll go see someone specifically for course management, or they'll go see someone for putting or whatever it is, and they'll learn that throughout their traineeship. But they incorporate all this stuff now in terms of conditioning, nutrition, all that sort of stuff. Mm. It's all in there. So they're being taught from that early age that this is something that needs to be needs to be seen. And when you look at the likes of Rory and maybe Bryson to a lesser extent there, um, you know, they're now saying, oh, this is what we have to do. And these people weren't around mm. when these players are now older and we're now getting to that point. So it's that socially acceptable, you know, creating that that conscious of, you know, physical training is important and it's just as cool as it is to kind of go out and play golf at the same time. But unless you can do that in a group environment, it is hard 
from an individual perspective, definitely. No, I agree with that because you, you definitely see there's like quite a lot of like um, like almost like CrossFit gyms now where they do like the little small group PT sessions, and I've definitely found it when I've gone in and gone into group environments, you do feel that sense of community and mm-hmm. an element of competition between them all as well, and 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 it, it's quite a nice synergy, isn't it, to actually create a bit of commitment and and progression. So. Yeah. yeah, no, definitely worth Sonic Exploring. It's, I've even written it down. <laughs> Did any of the clients continue with the exercises after your intervention? Unfortunately not, because it, when COVID hit in March and we just got done, it was just locked down for how many months or whatever it was. Um, a lot of them still did stay in touch. Um, I did some radio stuff and I did a, a there was something on the news too, uh, just recently where we got a bit of press about it. And then I got emails and phone calls and stuff about, oh, I wasn't in the original study, but I just heard on the radio or I just saw you on the news. Um, this is great. We want to get get part of it. Um, and this is something that will definitely be starting up in 2023. Um, in terms of the university stuff, we've got some new degrees coming out, new courses, all this sort of stuff that we've been busy doing on that side of things. So hopefully when I get a bit of spare time for research, this is something we'll be doing more from a longitudinal thing. And I'll tell you the biggest thing we want to be able to look at is the original questionnaire with their practice is now that they've seen that they can make these improvements um, to have faster club head speed, all this sort of stuff. I want to know if it then changes their practice mentality to say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not hurting as much anymore, or I can now probably comfortably swing the driver. And let's now see if the physical changes affect their practice methods, as opposed to them just going out and chipping and putting like you, like you were talking about mm. before, Lewis. Well, so it's definitely a longitudinal thing that you want to be able to look at. But yeah, we will once we get back up and running. Um, yeah, we'll be we'll be getting them in there, but unfortunately, COVID just, just stopped them from doing that, and it was quite bad because when we looked at like the mental aspect as well, we used mental wellness questionnaires and stuff like that. And even though it was at the time, it was one week before everything shut down, and we were saying, look, try to fill this in as honest as possible and related to golf and the study, not what's happening in the wider world at the moment. Those questionnaires were useless because everyone was panicking that there was a pandemic happening and we didn't know what was going to happen. So those were just rendered useless. Yeah, so w- what I'm thinking now, Chris, and I'm thinking about the pro and I'm thinking like, like Lewis, is what, what can they really do? The thing that I I can see happening in, in the near future is when we're talking, like Lindsay and I talk about golf warm-ups um, in some other delivery, but effectively I can see that there's the conference rooms in golf clubs. I can see them being yeah. useful for these kind of aspects because... I think whenever you go in a golf club and you walk past the conference rooms, you often see they're completely empty. But if you could have almost a take take downable gym with like soft mats so you can do warm ups in there, if you can have and this leads to the question for both of you now, certain gym equipment in there that people could go and use in groups collectively with somebody who comes into the club to help you, Lewis, to get them actually being in the club and doing it on site, that could be quite valuable. So the question I've got here is for both Lindsay and you, Chris, and I'll go to Lindsay first. Have you got certain gym equipment that you think would be really valuable for golf clubs to invest potentially into? Now, I'm only talking maybe three pieces of equipment that you think could be really valuable and useful. Have you got any ideas on that, Lindsay, to start off with? Oh, good question. Um, I think 
Chris made a good point earlier. Like, I think squatting and deadlifting are, are brilliant tools to improve strength and club head speed, but um, it takes a while to get skilled up in that. So I think a squat rack would be your more advanced sort of gym goer. So probably bands and a foam roller, so it'd be pretty cheap. It's just space, really, and a, a culture and some mats. Um, I think that would be the would have a lot of gains for for a, for a lower spend and and would be appropriate for most of the golfers. Bro, what what do you think, Chris? What do you think would be a good three to buy? I'd say that exactly right. I'd be getting some fit balls or Swiss balls. I'll be getting some foam rollers, um, and I'll probably get just some yoga mats or something like that to be to be able to look down on. Um, there's a lot of very basic exercises you can do to promote thoracic extension. Um, just a little bit of lower back release, that sort of stuff. Mm. And this is just stuff that we used to use these in the, in the uh, before they did their, their main strength exercises. We had them on the floor warming up with the foam rollers doing thoracic extension. We had them on the fit balls, kind of like doing like, um, kind of like imagine like you're praying on a ball with your knees, extending out, that sort of stuff. Uh, we had them on the floor with their backs on the floor, but their, their calves up on the ball just rotating left and right for lumbar mobility, that sort of stuff. These are just the basic things that you want to be able to warm up on when before you go out and play. Um, I mean, I played this afternoon. It cracked 40 degrees here today, so we didn't really need to warm up. We were able just to get out and, and hit. But um, believe it or not, it does get cold in, in, the, in the winter here. And obviously, I'm English originally. Um, I've probably acclimatized a little bit by now. But for those cold mornings, um, you know, it's you need to be able to do some sort of warm-up so you don't get injured when you just rock up and try to hit uh, 300 yards off the first tee. Yeah, and when I'm thinking about the squatting point, if someone was thinking of investing in one of those, I'm thinking, would, would a better setup instead of being, I'm just looking at my squat rack here, would it be better to have one of those, I don't know the technical term, but the one that you step into and it's kind of, sort of the bar surrounds you with the weights either side? <laughs> yeah, power rack. Yeah. Would they be a better option rather than having kind of a weighted on you here? So you can almost, if you needed to, you could drop it. Is that a, a safer option for that kind of age category? If you're going to use it, um, a lot of these places may buy this type of equipment, but it'll just kind of sit in the corner and it's just, it's got like clothes drying on it and all that sort of stuff. That That's like, it's just with any home gym, unless you're actually seeing people use it and, and it's being used. Like if you saw some of their healthier seniors being able to progress to that sort of stuff. But if you want that conference room as a warm-up room just to get him in there just to do mobility stuff, that's that's the goal of that. Mm. If you have someone in there doing PT or something and you've got the use of a power rack, um, essentially, yes, you can teach just basic lifts. But, you know, you can do that with free weights. Um, you don't have to have an expensive rack. A lot of these seniors are not going to have that thoracic mobility to throw a 20 kilo Olympic bar on their shoulders as well. So that's another problem that you, that you are going to have there. You can do basic lifts. Um, you, you can do football wall squats. You can use those um, TheraBands as well, or the elastic bands too. You can put those around the shoulders. You can stand on them, mm. squat up and down. It increases the resistance there. These are the type of things that you can start these people with without chucking them in a power rack, loading some plates on, and then go and right, pick that up or squat that or do something like that. So those yeah. are the dangers with getting that type of equipment. It just won't get used if A, you haven't got the right people there to train them and use it. And it's obviously a big safety thing as well. for them. And, that, and that's where a PT to work in a club as, as a join, maybe come every Tuesday and Thursday afternoons or something once they finish their round of golf could be quite a great way to get that training in. As long as you've got the space, the PT could also bring mm -hmm. some equipment in if they need to. 
there's ways there in which we can try and help those players. It just means that, again, if we can, as a golfing community and a club, try to promote that with some space, um, that could be quite valuable. Sorry, Lewis, what were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, like, I think the like getting someone in and, and all this is great. I think logistically actually going to happen is slim. I, I hate to say it, um, but I think that's mm. the reality. I think the main thing that I've taken on board from professionals that I've worked with, fitness professionals, is that just having a, a set of bands in my golf bag that I spend mm. five to ten minutes, not even that, just just warming up, you know, arms above my head, do a few squats, whatever, you know, just kind of loosening up with the bands properly through a series of different movements. Even I find benefit to that. Even I can feel the difference between I'm when I'm loose and not loose. Mm. Um, so mm. at, at very, very the worst, that could be, you know, the golf, golf pro shop could be selling those bands with a little instruction booklet tied to it. At the end of the day, yes, we all want them to be coming into a, a controlled environment, working with a professional, mm. blah, blah, blah. But if we're talking about like speaking to the masses of people and making uh, change that's, I suppose, something's better than nothing, then I suppose a set of bands and a, and a little lacrosse ball in their bag to roll out on or something would be quite good. The other thing as well that's trying to, and I've done this through years of private practice, is you get people in, you give them therabands and stuff, they're just not using yeah. them. It's the hardest thing to to try to get them to use them. You'd physically have to have someone on the first tee with that band and say, right, four of you, pick up one of these, just do this with me, just give me a minute of your time, and then go out with it. And then let's see if that, they go, oh, that made a bit of a difference or whatever. It's kind of like a salesman thing or a business strategy to, to kind of get them in that peace of mind. You've just got to, you have to put it in their faces for them to see it, feel an effect on it, and then think, yeah, that's something I should probably should be doing. I think there's also, yeah, I think there's a there's also an element of braveness as well. I think there's a situation where we have a sport that often can be seen stuck in its ways in some aspects, um, and I think we collectively, if we want to see better golfers, longer golfers, happier golfers, better scores we could do with trying to implement these changes and if it be a small step to start off with with therabands be it on the first tee for a few weeks to try and get people invested in it if they want to make even more of a use trying to make use of a room in a golf club and then if they can take that one step further and actually contact a pt and say look do you want to come in for two days a week you can earn money doing that but actually it helps our golfers if you design it that way i think there's a number of levels to this that we can really help golfers get better and be better for longer lewis how many Pros would get players to warm up before their lesson, as in not just hitting balls, but maybe a physical warm up. It, in all honesty, not many. I mean, I have, I, I depending on the client, they like I'll either throw them. I've got a band in my golf bag, like my teaching bag, and I'll go like here you go, warm up with that. But the the line that we have to cross is that I don't. I'm pretty sure based on our insurance. Uh, when, when we're coaching we're not allowed to give out exercises because we could cause injury we don't do things like par cues and stuff like that before people start having lessons we ask them if they have injuries and stuff like that something you know the PGA it's a requirement to pass your coaching exam is you ask at the start of the lesson do you have any injuries? And if they've got a fused spine and a dodgy ankle, you need to know before you change something about their swing. But 
yet on an assurance basis we can't go right do 10 squats for me i mean like it depending who it is in the bay they will probably have a roughly a good idea and i'm like oh here's some bat here's a band if you want to warm up with it um and i might have shown them what i would do but i'm not telling them to do it if, if that makes sense so that's kind of uh the difficult bit there and then you might find a client that's a bit older um and they'll be like what, what's this <laughs> um mm. so they might just have a few loosener shots at worst what we're going to do there is just get them to swing a club hit a few shorter shots from 10 yards up to about 50 yards and then we'll work our way onto a full swing Sure. Well, I'm at, I'm actually at the, at the Belfry next week talking to the PGA, so I'll I'll actually ask them about that and see about what kind of um, issues that can arise with warm up suggestions, and also about kind of um, from like you say from an insurance perspective and kind of what pros can recommend on that front yeah. because I think it is really valuable and really important, um, but it's something that I think I could communicate effectively back to the pros who listen to this and also to yourself, Lewis, around um, what barriers there are and actually can that be promoted and what way can that be promoted by pros? So I think it is a really important piece to, yeah. to include. There. If, if I um, knew my boundaries and if I, maybe there is some light I could shed on movement ability for, for players and warm ups and stuff, then I would do it. But I, I, it's always been sort of uh, spread to me that we, we cannot, we're not allowed. Gotcha. Brilliant. Well, I think we've, talked about those papers quite nicely have you two got any other questions about the strength and conditioning um, around those papers Lindsay Lewis um, no I think I'm okay I'm all good yeah no it was well covered Lindsay you're good yeah all good good man great stuff so Chris it is now moving on to the quick fire round now then so this is where you and I get to uh discuss our annoyances within golf um, I think we might have covered a couple already in this podcast to be fair <laughs> but um, some yeah this this section is focused on that bit of light-hearted bit of fun um, but yeah get to talk about some of the key things that annoy us so last week um, we spoke to or not last week last episode we spoke to Professor Graham Close and one of his big annoyances was slow play on the golf course so what we're going to do in this um, episode here is we're going to effectively I'm going to give you two different potential annoyances and you have to choose which one you think is the most annoying okay so to start off with we will end with what we'll start with what graham's one was in the last episode which was slow play on the golf course versus flimsy flags on the golf green which one flimsy flags yeah no right let me give you context here when i play with my group I hate having really rubbish flags on a golf course. The ones that are really, really thin, that fly all over the place, I absolutely hate them. It could just be me, but <laughs> that's the question to you. Which one's more annoying, slow play or the flags? Slow play. Slow play, fair enough, okay, yeah. 100%. I think that's probably- I've never, you know, I've never played golf in England. I've only ever started here in my early 20s. Um, we don't have a problem with flags, so that's a new one for me, <laughs> flimsy flags. <laughs> It might just be a problem from my perspective, to be honest with you, but it's something that can get some get somebody. That's a different podcast. All right then. <laughs> that definitely is a different podcast. <laughs> Great shout. Okay, so we're sticking with slow play on the golf course now then. So is it slow play or is it golf clubs charging for range balls that are from the 1990s? Oh, 
Um, I'm still going to go slow play, but it is annoying when you get a bucket and there's just someone there that's just got chunks out of them and you just knock them away. But it's not as annoying as slow play. Okay, fair enough. All right then, so sticking with slow play then, is it slow play or is it your Bushnell scanning a bush behind the green instead of the flag? Um, I always use the quote, measure twice, cut once. So I'm normally quite good with that. So I am still going to stick on the slow play. When you say measure twice, cut once, what's that? Measure twice, cut once. So they always tell you if you're doing any DIY or anything like that, make sure you measure the thing twice and then you only have to cut it once. If you measure once, cut once and you screw it up. So with a Bushnell, I'm always pointing and shooting a couple of times to make sure I'm locked yeah, on. me too. I'm, I'm the same. I've done it a few times and I've learned my lessons, so I'm not doing that again. So, brilliant. So, we, you are sticking with slow play because of that reasoning. That's fine. So, is it slow play or is it someone walking on your line on the putting green, not once, but twice? So, on a second green. So, they've done it once on the first time. You let them off the second time. What's your thoughts? All right. You've come close there. <laughs> but no, it's slow play. I just I'm out there and I'm playing golf and I want to be done and dusted and I don't want to be hanging around. So I'm just sticking on slow play. But that is annoying, an annoying stuff. Walking on my. I line. may have one that will change Chris's mind. Can I throw one in the ring, Dan? Go for it, Liz. Slow play, or playing partners giving you advice when you're playing poorly. Um. Yeah, I'm going to go with that one. I'll give you a bit of context here. I'm sitting across from, um, have you heard of Karen Up Golf Course? No. They do a European tour oh, okay. event in Australia. Um, like Karen Up Golf okay. Club. I, I'm living directly against it. I can see oh, it cool. right now. Uh, we played a, an Audi Prime event there in June, and there was these two people we got partnered up with and just did not have no idea of personal space, stood right behind you when you swung, gave you all the advice, all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, that beats slow play. Well done. Get in there. <laughs> so, Chris, do you have another one that you think is... Yeah, I've, got, I've made a couple here. This one that really gets me is right-handers in left-handed bays. Just because they like that extra bit of room. Uh, I do play... I've got, got the range with a friend of mine maybe every second week. We have a few drinks afterwards. He's a lefty. And the bays are set up so it can be used as a right-handed bay, but there's obviously a left-handed mat next to it, and the ball pops up in the middle. So we just stand there opposite each other, just hit the ball. But quite often we'll go there on a busy night, and there's a right-hander just sitting there in the left-handed bay, and just completely oblivious to everybody else, particularly the left-handers. That, that so if you're out there and you're listening, sort it out. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. What was the second one there, Chris? Stay in your lane. So they also stay in your lane or stay in your bay. <laughs> what was that second one, Chris? Stay in, your la stay in your bay. If you're right-handed, stay, stay in the right-handers. People just like to put their clubs down on the left-handed map just so they've got a bit of space and it's all pretty and stuff, but it, it doesn't fly for me. No. Fair enough. What was your other annoyance? You said you had a couple. I had a couple. Worn-out range mats. I can't stand them, especially if it's the only one left and you have to use it. I'm not a fan of that. Uh, people who don't repair pitch marks and people who just take it too seriously. Just chill out you're out there with your mates having a good time that's it got it brilliant well which one would you like to choose for me to start with in the next podcast uh let's go with 
All right, let's go with, look, I'm, I doubt he's going to be left-handed. If he is left-handed, it will be the left-handed Bay one, but I'm going to go with worn-out hitting mats on the range. Mm, gotcha. Brilliant. Well, thank you for joining us there. Uh, that was great, Chris. Um, so, thank you for joining us today. Um, it's been a really useful discussion again. Um, I think um, it's going to help the senior players, also help pros of how to kind of effectively... Uh, work with senior players as well and what we can do within uh, the kind of coaching realm to try and help those players uh, improve their golf and improve the longevity of their golf so thank you for joining us today is really appreciated no problems thanks for having us on thanks guys um now it'd be great to have you back in the future because i know you obviously are talking about some other uh, research that you're going to be performing um going forward so we'd love to have you back at some point and maybe i was thinking if you're actually doing some research we could do maybe even a little live episode of some data collection. That might be quite an interesting one to look into if that's possible. But I'll leave that with you. But... Yeah, we've... No, yeah, that sounds good. We've got the, like I've told you before, we've got the new motion capture lab as well with all the new 3D toys. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just put the nets up as well. So, yeah, definitely sometime this year we can get some sort of live feed going on there. Brilliant. Well, what's your kind of uh, social media? Where can our listeners find you? Uh... I, I don't really have any. I've got Facebook and Instagram, but I don't really put any work stuff on there. Um, you can probably get me on ResearchGate, which is one where you can find all the research on there. Um, I don't use Twitter. So, no, nah, you're not getting me on anything. I'm on stealth mode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've gone stealth. What about, I'm not big on self-medication or anything like that. What about the golf rehab clinic uh, contacts? Yeah, there you go. Um, it doesn't have any social stuff yet because it was just kind of like an information site where the research was put out. Mm-hmm. But that's uh, golfrehabclinic.com. Um, but we will probably, when we get the longitudinal stuff happening in the new year, we'll be able to put some social stuff on there. Um, but yeah, we'll be able to upgrade that. So I'd probably go golfrehabclinic.com. That probably gives you a lot of the insight into what we do there. Perfect. Well, thanks very much. So. Secondly, Lindsay, again, thank you for joining us today. Again, it was great to have your input um, and some of the kind of experiences from your side working with the high-level golfers. So thank you for being on today. Thanks for having us. Brilliant. Where can people find you on social media as well or your website and that kind of thing? My website's lindsaysmartphysiotherapy.com and I'm on um, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Perfect. So thanks very much. Thanks for joining us. So the next uh, person to say goodbye to for the episode is obviously Lewis. Um, Lewis is going to join us next week. Don't worry, I'm not losing him. I'm just saying goodbye today. Um, but again, thanks for joining us, uh, Lewis. It's been really appreciated again, mate. Where can they find you too? Um, at Lewis Downey Golf Pro on Instagram. Nice and easy to find. And it's a pleasure to be on again, learning from uh, the geniuses to my top right and my top left. And you, Dan, too. Don't worry. <laughs> say, thank you very much no brilliant great stuff um so in the next episode of the golf science podcast now this one we are going to be speaking to dr tony Luxak uh, from the university of mississippi um, he's an assistant research professor at the national strategic planning and analysis research center and we'll be talking to him about his paper on the challenges of using 2d versus 3d for golf coaches so that's all for episode five of the golf science podcast if you'd like to learn more about the science of golf, visit my website at sciencecaddy.com, where you'll find golf science articles, videos, and online webinars. So until next time, I've been your host, Daniel Thompson, your caddy for all things golf science. <laughs>